The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH and your host, and today I'm delighted to welcome my dear friend, regular monthly guest, Dr. Peter Hammond. He has been away for a couple of weeks, so before we get into today's show, Peter, can you let the audience know what uh, has been happening, please? Yes, well, three weeks ago, we were just about to begin our recording, and um. I'd suffered a stroke that morning and you encouraged me to rather go to the hospital when I told it to you. And uh, so my daughter drove me off to the hospital and they did an immediate MRI scan and saw I had suffered a stroke. And my left side had gone very lame and uh, I found myself bumping into pictures and um, bookcases on the left side of me and I'd fallen on the ground. In fact, I really thought last Tuesday morning I was dying uh, I mean, I should say three weeks ago, and um, I've not been afraid that I've been ready for it for years because working in war zones, restricted access areas, being in eight different wars, bombs and bullets were the way, or landmines were the ways I expected to meet my end. I didn't expect to die of a stroke uh, lying on the floor in my bathroom, uh, but um, that almost happened three weeks ago, but... Um, the chairman of the board of our mission, who is an ex-paratrooper, Anthony Stander, he came to the hospital that Tuesday evening, anointed me with oil, read James 5 about the prayer of faith, and prayed for me to be healed. And the uh, occupational therapists, the doctor, the neurological therapists and speech therapists the next day were astounded at my recovery. And um, in fact, the one when I was given a puzzle to solve she said, well, that's a record when I put it together in record time. And uh, the neurological therapist said, no sign of any cognitive damage. Normally a stroke damages your your speech, your ability to walk and uh, obviously talk and even think or remember things. But they gave me a battery of tests and declared there was no evidence of any damage done and that I was recovering at a record rate. So at the time, I said, I've got a major conference coming up next week at Quest of Mission, one of the biggest ministers' conferences anyway, over 2,000 ministers and missionaries from all over Africa. And uh, they said, well, you can cancel that, cancel everything, you're not going anywhere, uh, you've just had a stroke, and there's no way you can travel or do anything 
resembling public speaking next week or two. Well, by the Friday, I was given a test walk up and down the stairs and around the hospital by the OT. An occupational therapist declared me fit to be released. The doctor was quite surprised, but I was released and um, given exercises to do each day. And I flew on Monday last week to KwaZulu-Natal and was picked up by good friends across the Bunta Mission. And against all expectations, I managed to give the presentation planned at the conference. And um, in fact, a person can listen to or watch it on our Frontline Mission SA.org website, The Worship of True Repentance on King David. And uh, I managed, I'm back in Cape Town and just this last weekend, I drove out to a mission base outside of town to take part in the Sunday morning service, and I'm I'm almost fully operational again. And uh, this radio program now with you is, represents me getting back to recordings, and I just praise God that He heals. And I think people need to read James five and practice the prayer of faith more often. Because our God is a God who heals. He is Jehovah Rapha. And I've experienced this before in the field. I was in the Nuba Mountains in 1998, and I got stung by a very deadly scorpion. Now, the scorpions with the small clippers in the front and a big tail are the most deadly ones, and they've got an almost uh, transparent color, very, um, very light colored. And they, they're the ones who are fatal. And I got bitten by one of those on the hand, and I could feel a poison going up my arm literally heading towards my heart. Well, I was hours away from any help, uh, even if we had an aircraft available, which we didn't. And uh, there was nothing for it but to call for the elders to um, pray for me, and they did. And I could literally feel the poison going down my arm, out the fingertips, and away from my heart, and I survived that. And uh, this was a similar immediate healing experience, and we do believe in the God of miracles, and he is merciful and gracious. Now, whether somebody induced some kind of poison to induce a heart attack on me or not, I'm not sure, or a stroke, but um, I have recovered, and I'm up and doing my exercises, and um, the folks at the conference were astounded that I managed to still give the presentation all that. I still check my blood pressure every day and all that sort of thing, but... Um, I just praise God for it, and it's so important. The Bible makes it clear we're to live in the light of eternity. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that to face the judgment. So we must live our lives in the, in the light of eternity, and I think I've, I've always tried to do that, but it, this is a kind of wake-up call that gets you just, are you ready? And uh, we need to continually live as those who know that you could at a moment's notice be summoned before the Lord, whether he comes or whether he calls us, we need to be ready and found occupying till he comes and productive in the Lord's service. So thank you for all the prayers of your listeners and thank you very much for standing with me during this time. It's been pretty bad because I've done a lot of hospital visitation, but to be on the other side, to be the patient in the bed, don't do that so well. My first mission was Hospital Christian Fellowship. And the motto there was more people pass through the hospitals of the world than through the churches. And we need to train medical staff to be ongoing witnesses to evangelize and disciple people who come through hospitals. And uh, after a lot of praying by sick beds and 
with terminal patients and that included even my father and my mother and of course my wife Laura who had a 12-year battle with cancer. So I'm used to being a visitor to hospitals and reading the Psalms and praying by the bedsides, holding the hands of people who are sometimes in their last hours. But uh, to actually be there realizing I'm, I'm the patient this time and getting people visiting me, that was a very humbling experience and uh, sobering. But praise God for good health. So today we want to continue with can I just, the real uh, story of the history of central blanking. Can I just jump in there, Peter, just very quickly? Yes, I just please. want to... It was actually two weeks today. Now, we record these shows on a Tuesday morning, 10 o'clock UK time, 9.45, sorry, UK time. It was on the 28th of February. Um, I phoned Peter, yes. and uh, I was actually a few minutes late, and I'm rarely late. And um, I had something to tell him as well. So I was like, hello, Peter, blah, 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 blah. And then he said, and I could tell by his voice. And um, so straight away, um, his... his a family member helped out which was wonderful um but prayer works folks strokes are very serious things i know how peter sounded on that morning that he had the stroke because i spoke to him and he sounds like his old self now but then and peter with his dedication wanted to do the show i said peter you've got to get to a hospital if you've had this stroke as he said earlier and thankfully uh he's got a, a wonderful family members who were uh, got there in time plus all the prayers from the audience and all the other people associated with peter his friends his family the members of his mission we thank them all but prayer works folks how many people do you know that have had a stroke that are able to come on and do a show two weeks later so that being said i'm just going to introduce the show we're going to continue with the real story of the history of central banking and its enslavement of mankind this is part four peter where would you like to start us off today We got up to the United States Federal Reserve Bank at the end of the last part three, and um, it's worth noting that between 1820 and 1910, there was a pretty consistent, stable value for the US dollar. And despite the temporary spike in prices during the American War between the states of 1861 to 1866, the dollar retained its purchasing power. One dollar was still worth a dollar about 90 years later. However, it took less than six years for the United States Federal Reserve Bank to destroy the value of the dollar. Between 1914, when the Federal Reserve Bank came into effect, and 1920, the prices rose by 125%, and the dollar reduced its value by 56%. Now, of course, this laid the groundwork to the Great Depression, but we need to say something important about this. There was a secret bankers meeting held on 18th May 1920 in Washington, D.C., and the very misleading title of the Orderly Deflation Committee of the American Bankers Association. Under orders of the Federal Reserve Board, without notice or warning, the discount rates suddenly rose from 2% to 9% and beyond. And simultaneously, the Federal Reserve Bank began to aggressively sell government bonds and reduce their value by 20%. The fall in bond prices reduced the value of the reserves of the community banks, who were then forced to call in all their loans, and this resulted in terrific liquidation of all agricultural products. And not only farms were sold, but farming equipment uh, at fire sale prices, and 
This resulted in agricultural prices tumbling to ridiculously low levels where it would cost more to produce the food in some cases than to, uh, to sell it or buy it. So at the same time, freight companies, trucks and mostly railroads, owned by the major trusts like Harriman's, increased the railroad rates to such an extent that in some cases, the freight costs exceeded the cost of the farm production. And so farm production dropped by more than a half from 1922, um, just a year later. Many farmers were ruined, the overheads remained unchanged, the financial costs soared, and farmers went bankrupt, and literally millions of farms had to be liquidated. The unlimited powers which the Federal Reserve Bank possessed now enabled it to contract the currency and the credit of the United States by $2 billion, $2 billion less, with the result that prices were cut in half and confusion and distress reigned. This policy was carried out deliberately in order to impoverish the agricultural sector by transferring rural money to the urban centers and at the same time reducing America's food independence, making America vulnerable to the intrigues and the whims of the financial speculators and the swindlers. So in July 1921, the Federal Reserve Bank reversed this policy by purchasing government bonds, but the damage had been done and the agricultural banks could not be repaired. Agricultural products remained artificially depressed and some products were sold below the cost of production which of course is nowhere to operate. So in August 1927, the conspirators running the privately owned Federal Reserve Bank decided it was time to create a new boom. And despite the protestations of 11 of the 12 Federal Reserve Banks who could see the danger, they were ordered to lower their rediscount rates and embark on a massive government bond repurchasing program to boost the money supply. Now, hardly any of this newly created money, which basically was created ex nihilo out of nothing, barely any of it went into productive investments. It was poured mostly into the stock market, and the price-earnings ratio rose quickly to about 20 to 1, and in some cases 50 to 1. The news media and deluded economists announced the arrival of a new era of permanent prosperity, and they purposely panned it claims of speculation so that 16 million Americans out of a population of only 73 million bought and sold shares. So huge percentage of the US population got into buying and selling shares on a stock exchange. And then on the 9th of March, 1929, Paul Warburg, the Freemason and founder of the Federal Reserve Bank, advised all his bank members, member banks, as well as the Secretary of the Treasury and his fellow Freemason, Andrew Mellon, get out of the stock markets or sell it short. He informed them if they acted immediately, they could reap enormous profits as the Dow Jones share index was about to collapse in a titanic plunge, which it did. So on 24th of October, 1929, the Federal Reserve Bank decided to put on, put an end to the orgy of speculation and to commence the fleecing of the people. The rediscount rate was suddenly increased to 6%. From nowhere, Thousands of orders arrived at the New York Stock Exchange to sell at market prices. And this is a typical strategy employed by speculators to knock down the share prices rapidly. Confidence evaporated, and the first intentionally planned Great Depression was in full swing. The decisive moment came six days later on October the 30th, 1929, 
when the Federal Reserve Bank ordered the contraction of brokers' loans in the amount of about $2.3 million. The stock exchange went into a tailspin, crashed and burned, and by December 1932, the value of its listed securities had fallen by 83%, from $89 billion to less than $15 billion, so 83% crash in terms of total value of earnings in the United States. The economic and social consequences of this implosion were devastating. Out of 24,000 banks, 10,000 banks were crushed out of existence, leaving those with deposits in them ruined. That's pensioners, people's savings, all of that just lost. 200,000 companies filed for bankruptcy. 8.3 million people thrown onto the streets, homeless and without work. Within three years, 24% of the working population were unemployed. The total national income in the United States declined by 40%, from 81 billion in 1927 to 48 billion in 1932. So during the Depression years, an estimated 3 million people died of starvation just in the United States of America. Can you imagine? The main causes malnutrition, infectious diseases, starvation, and suicide. When referring to the New York Stock Exchange collapse, which initiated the depression, the congressman Louis McFadden stated, it was a carefully contrived occurrence. The international bankers sought to bring about a condition of despair so that they might emerge as the rulers of us all. A. N. Fields condemned the worthlessness of the central banks and its perverted purposes for which they've been consistently utilized. In these words, Reserve banking as a means of preventing financial crisis has thus been a complete and total failure in the United States. The unprecedented booms and slumps since its inception have been deliberately caused. Those in control of the system have raised the strongest objections to every one of the numerous attempts made in Congress to write an instruction into law directing the Federal Reserve Bank to use its tremendous powers to maintain the purchasing power of the dollar at a stable level. So there were people who saw immediately what was going on. In the Financial Times, 1930, Professor Carl Gustav Kassel of Stockholm University, Sweden, said, practically absolute power over the welfare of the world has been placed in the hands of the Federal Reserve Board. And one is appalled to see the apparently haphazard manner in which this board is using its power. How ignorant this is of the aim, which should be to dictate American monetary policy. And so, 1932, the United States House of Representatives, um, the former chairman of the House Banking and Currency Committee, the Honorable Louis McFadden said, Mr. Chairman, we have in this country one of the most corrupt institutions the world has ever known. I refer to the Federal Reserve Bank and its Federal Reserve Banks. The Federal Reserve Board a government board has cheated the government of the United States and the people of the United States out of enough money to pay the national debt. The depredations and iniquities of the Federal Reserve Board and the Federal Reserve Banks acting together have cost this country enough money to pay the national debt several times over. This evil institution has impoverished and ruined the people of the United States, has bankrupted itself, has practically bankrupted our governments. It has done this through the defects of the law which it operates through the maladministration of that law by the Federal Reserve Board and through the corrupt practices of the moneyed vultures who control it. Basically, the word usury. 
Some people think the Federal Reserve Banks are United States government institutions. They are not. Government institutions uh, are being abused by these private banks. These are private credit monopolies which prey upon the people in the United States for the benefit of themselves and their foreign customers, foreign and domestic speculators and swindlers, the rich and predatory monetary lenders. In this dark crew of financial pirates, there are those who would cut a man's throat to get a dollar out of his pocket. There are those who send money into the United States just to buy votes to control our legislation. There are those who maintain international propaganda for the purposes of deceiving us and of wheedling us into granting new concessions which will permit them to cover up their past misdeeds and set up in motion their gigantic train of crime. So these are all quotes from um, the Honorable Louis McFadden, who was once chairman of the House Banking and Currency Committee. And this is him protesting in 1932 to the responsibility of the Federal Reserve Bank for causing the Great Depression. And uh, by extension, three million people dying of starvation in the United States. These 12 private credit monopolies were deceitfully and disloyally foisted upon this country by bankers who came here from Europe and who repaid us for our hospitality by undermining our American institutions. Those bankers took money out of this country to finance Japan in a war against Russia. They created a reign of terror in Russia with our money in order to help that war along. They instigated a separate peace treaty between Germany and Russia to drive a wedge between the Allies and World War One. They financed Trotsky's mass meetings of discontent and rebellion in New York. They paid for Trotsky's passage from New York to Russia that he might assist in the destruction of the Russian Empire. They fomented and instigated the Russian Revolution. They placed a large fund of American dollars at Trotsky's disposal for the Red Army in one of their bank accounts in Sweden so that through him, Russian homes might be thoroughly broken up and Russian children thrown far and wide from their natural protectors. They have since begun the breaking up of American homes and the dispersal of American children. It has been said that President Wilson was deceived by the attentions of these bankers. It's been said that when he discovered the manner in which he had been misled by Colonel House, he turned against a busybody the holy monk of the financial empire, and showed him the door. President Wilson died a victim of deception. He said he knew very well about banking. It was therefore in the advice of others that the iniquitous Federal Reserve Act, a death warrant of American liberty, became law under his administration. In 1912, the National Monetary Association, under the directorship of the center, Nelson Aldrich, made a report and presented a vicious bill called the National Reserve Association Bill. It was referred to as the Eldritch Bill after the Senator Eldritch, but he didn't write the bill. He was the tool of the European-born Jewish bankers who for 20 years have been scheming to set up a central bank in this country, who in 1912 spent and were continuing to spend vast sums of money to accomplish their purpose. The Eldritch Bill was condemned in that platform upon which Theodore Roosevelt was nominated in the year 1912. And he said, we are opposed to the Eldritch Plan of the Central Bank. The men who ruled the Democratic Party then promised the people that if they were returned to power, there would be no Central Bank established while they held the reins of government. But 13 months later, that promise was broken as Woodrow Wilson's administration 
and the tutelage of the sinister Wall Street figures who stood behind Colonel House established it in our free country, the worm-eaten monarchical institutions of the King's Bank, to control us from the top downward, to shackle us from cradle to grave. The Federal Reserve Bank destroyed our old and characteristic way of doing business. It fastened down this country to the very tyranny from which the framers of the Constitution sought to save us. One of the greatest battles for the preservation of this republic was fought here in Andrew Jackson's day when the Second Bank of the United States, which was founded upon the same false principles as those which are exemplified in the Federal Reserve Act, was hurled out of existence. President Andrew Jackson got rid of the Central Reserve Bank and uh, very successfully led America to a great economic recovery. So after the downfall of the Second Bank of the United States in 1837, the country was warned against the dangers that might ensue if these predatory interests, after being cast out, should ever be allowed to come back in disguise and unite themselves to the executive and through him acquire control of the government. This is what the predatory interests did when they came back in the library of hypocrisy and under false pretenses and obtained the passage of the Federal Reserve Act. So this is all from the speech from uh, this previous head of the um, House Banking and Currency Committee, the Honorable Louis McFadden. The danger that the country has warned against has come upon us and has shown the long train of horror attendant upon the affairs of this traitorous and dishonest Federal Reserve Board and the Federal Reserve Banks. This is an era of economic misery. The Federal Reserve Board and the Federal Reserve Bank are fully liable. This is an era of finance crime and the financing of crime. And the Federal Reserve Board does not play the part of a disinterested speculator or spectator. They are fully involved. The people of the United States have been greatly wronged. They've been driven from their employments. They've been dispossessed of their homes. They've been evicted from their rented quarters. They've lost their children. They've been left to suffer and to die for lack of shelter, food, clothing, and medicine. The wealth of the United States and the working capital of the United States have been taken away from them, has been locked away in the vaults of certain banks and great corporations or exported to foreign banks and corporations. As far as the people of the United States are concerned, the cupboard is now bare. The warehouses and coal yards and grain elevators have been padlocked and the great banks and corporations hold the keys. The looting of the United States by the Federal Reserve Board and the Federal Reserve Banks and their associates is the greatest crime in history. So said McFadden. Mr. Chairman, a serious situation confronts the House of Representatives today. We are the trustees of the people, but the rights of the people are being taken away from them. Through the Federal Reserve Bank, the people are losing the rights guaranteed them by the Constitution. Their property has been taken away from them without due process of law. These are crimes against the public welfare and it's treason against this country. What is needed here is a return to the Constitution of the United States, to have a complete divorce of bank and state. The old struggle that was fought out in Andrew Jackson's day must be fought again. The independent United States Treasury should be re-established and the government should keep its own money under lock and key. Asset currency, the device of the swindler, should be done away with. Government should buy gold and issue United States currency on it. The state banking system should be freed from coercion. The Federal Reserve Districts should be abolished. The state boundaries should be respected. 
the Federal Reserve Act and the Federal Reserve Banks have violated their charters and they should be liquidated immediately. Faithless government officers who have violated their oaths of office should be impeached and brought to trial. We need to sweep out the money changers out of the temple. And he said that to great applause in the House of Representatives. Now, uh, Stephen, Goodson, Stephen Mitford Goodson points out that in South Africa, it was under Jan Smuts that South Africa naively and foolishly in 1920 allowed the South Reserve Bank to be established as a replica of the U United States Federal Reserve Bank. And as he said, the South African Reserve Bank is not South African, it has no reserves and it's not a bank. And the same thing could be said of the US Reserve Bank. It's not American, it doesn't have reserves and it's not a bank. It's a fraud. Now, Clifford Hugh Douglas was an engineer and superintendent of the Royal Aircraft Factory at Farnborough in England during the First World War. And uh, he noticed that the total costs of goods were greater than the sums paid in wages, salaries, and dividends. So he investigated this disconnect to, to the way how money is flowing through industry. And he collected data from hundreds of companies and he found there was a persistent deficit in purchasing power of consumers relative to the cost of production. He considered income tax to be a negative dividend. Instead of proposing the payment of national dividends to its citizens, which would bridge the gap between earnings and prices, uh, what they were doing instead was stealing from all the citizens through this usury, this interest being charged on loans issued to governments by these privately owned reserve banks. And so Clifford Hugh Douglas proposed providing consumers with additional buying power necessary to absorb the current production of goods in a non-inflationary manner. And Douglas's economic theory, known as social credit, advocated the transfer of the money creation process away from private banks who created money out of nothing as an interest-bearing debt to state bank controlled by the government, not by private banksters. He also proposed the price adjustment mechanism called the just price to reduce prices by percentage as improvements in technology reduce the costs. And so he wanted to make use of full employment and he said economics are like tides. We fail to harness these tides, but the ebb and flow, the right thing to do would be to chart the ebb and flow and then to surf those waves. So after World War One, Douglas devote the rest of his life to promoting his ideas and he gave lectures in many countries like Australia, Canada, Japan, New Zealand and Norway and the Social Credit Party obtained control of the provincial governments of Alberta, Canada in 1939 and after his tour of Japan 1929 his policies were adopted by the Japanese government in 1932. They closed the usury bank, the Rothschild privately owned bank and created their own national bank. And so Douglas's policies were so feared by the international bankers that they put up over five million pounds to counter his highly successful program of public enlightenment to try and smear him and to bring him down. And then there was also Irving Fisher, a famous professor of economics in Yale University, and Irving Fisher adopted a mathematical approach to resolving economic problems, and he wrote the treatise, The Theory of Interest, 
observing the changes in the values of goods relative to changes in time and money rates, interest rates. Well, in March 1913, Senator Robert Owen, chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, tried to introduce an alternative bill to the fraudulent Rockefeller Rothschild banking and currency proposal. The bill introduced by Owen would have allowed for the inclusion of staple commodities as part of the monetary base, in addition to gold and silver, to prevent the possibility of either inflation or deflation, and would have created a real freedom for employment. So Irving Fisher assisted Owen drafting the bill, which was systematically blackmailed into withdrawing the bill. And so the Rothschilds and Rockefellers worked by blackmailing and bribery to get this bill squashed. Well, here is a quote from the Federal Reserve Conspiracy and Rockefellers, their gold corner book, which describes what happened. The conspirators determined to block the adoption of the Owen Bill. They had Professor Fisser summoned before the Yale University officials and confronted with the charge that he was foolish to advocate money based on commodities. He was warned that there would be no place at Yale University or any other university for anybody so foolish as to advocate a change to the present Federal Reserve Banking System. And so this professor... Irving Fisher succumbed to the conspirators' blackmail and he double-crossed Senator Owen, withdrew his professional support for the honest remedial bill that he had just helped to draft. And uh, this coup de grace was given to Owens' honest stabilizing currency and banking bill by the flat rejection by President Woodrow Wilson of this bill to rectify the iniquitous system of the Federal Reserve Bank. But later, Fisher relented from his previous betrayal of Senator Owen's efforts, and uh, he published the book, The Dollar Stabilization, which contained what, what later became known as the Chicago Plan. This plan was privately issued as a six-page memorandum and distributed to, eight to 40 individuals in 1933. It advocated that the state should create the nation's money supply and private banks should operate as full reserve banks. Using mathematical principles, he is able to prove that full employment could be the result and business cycles of inflation and deflation would be abolished. Inflation would be reduced, would essentially remain at zero. Well, in 2012, two researchers at the International Monetary Fund produced the Chicago Plan Revisited and found that every one of Fisher's findings was 100% correct. And this is part of the conclusion that the Chicago Plan, a proposal for fundamental monetary reform, would have resulted in greater macro stability, much lower debt levels throughout the economy, and uh, that they rigorously evaluated this plan and found that it was completely workable and preferable. Well, interestingly, Japan, Italy, and Germany took many of these ideas and implemented them, even though it wasn't implemented in the States. So, Stephen Mitford Goodson's book then, in Chapter 6, deals with the rise and fall of state banking, as opposed to the usury uh, private banks of the Rothschilds. And uh, he starts off by quoting from the Protocols of Zion number 20, we are 
aware that the gold standard has been the ruin of the states which adopted it, for it has not been able to satisfy the demands for money, the more so that we have removed gold from circulation as far as possible. So the protocols of Zion saw the need to destabilize currencies by removing most gold from circulation. Then he quotes from Adolf Hitler, who said, money to me was simply a token of exchange for work done. Its value depends absolutely on the value of the work accomplished. Where money does not represent services rendered, I insist it has no value at all. So, out of the chaos and economic havoc caused by the Great Depression, which the banksters engineered in the 1920s, came massive unemployment in the 1930s. And uh, this was the result of the Rothschild-controlled banks. And now, in May 1990, May 1919, an insignificant soldier attended a lecture given by a former construction engineer turned economist, Dr. Keith Lee Feder, called the abolition of interest servitude. And uh, Adolf Hitler listened to these lectures and recognized the principles of stock exchange capital and capital, which is used for loan activities, the double character of the capital engaged in stock exchange and loan transactions is always dependent on the payments of interest, which is a way of enslaving people to endlessly be paying interest. So in Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler wrote, here was the truth of transcendence importance for the future of the German people. The absolute separation of the stock exchange capital from the economic life of the nation would make it possible to oppose the processes of internationalization in our businesses without at the same time attacking the capital as such. To do this would be to jeopardize the formation of our independence. He said, I saw to develop Germany, the stiffest fight would be against the nations, not the nations surrounding us, but against international capital, as seen in the bankers who use usury, charging interest. And so he said, in Feder's speech, I found an effective rallying cry for the coming struggle. So this Feder became the principal draft of the National Socialist Workers' Party's 25 points, and he became the architect and the theoretician of the program. In July 1933, he was appointed Undersecretary for State for Economic Affairs and then Reich Commissioner in 1934. And so the principles were common interest before self, spirit of the program, abolition of the thraldom or feudalism of interest, and uh, separation of state, nation, and economics under the corrupting influence of the individualist theory, the shame of the state today, oppressing the working classes, protecting the pirated gains of the bankers and stock exchange speculators is the area for reckless private enrichment and the lowest political profiteering. It gives no thought to the people, it provides no moral bond of union. The power of money, most ruthless of all powers, holds absolute sway and exercises corrupting, destroying influence on state, nation, society, morals, drama, literature, and all matters of morality. And therefore, to break down this feudalism of interest, the landowner is held under the feudal system, having to finance his loans, very high interest, to the results that he's almost a slave on his own land, which can be taken from him, 
he fails to meet these debt repayments. So the middle class, they work is almost entirely to pay for the interest on bank overdrafts. And this is iniquitous, it's enslavement. And so capital versus labor, blood versus money, creative work versus exploitation, this is the battle. Our nation's hope of rising from a shame and slavery is the hope of recovering happiness, prosperity, and civilization. It's much more than just the financial policies. We need to protect the country from unlimited private enrichment, which is what the bankers were doing through these state banks. Finance shall exist for the benefit of the state. The financial magnate shall not form a state within the state. Therefore, our aim is to break the feudalism of the interest-charging banks. Relief for the state and hence for the whole nation is from its indebtedness to these great financial houses who lend on interest. Then included nationalization of the Reichsbank, provision of money for all great public works, whether water, railroads, and all these loans must be by granting non-interest-bearing state bonds and without using any money. Introduction of a fixed standard of currency on a secured basis, creation of a national bank of business developments, granting non-interest-bearing loans, in other words, loans without charging interest. The relief for the consumer from the burden of direct taxation, the producer from crippling taxation um, is essential. And so wanton printing of banknotes without creating new values means inflation. You've got to increase the work ethic of the country and the products and services, not print more money. And so some of the principles they set up was the, the government should only spend that amount which is covered by taxes. They mustn't get into debt. Full financial control must be returned to the Ministry of Finance, and they must pay for everything um, without taking loans. Price and wage control must be rendered effective. Existing mismanagement must be eliminated. The use of money in investment markets must be at the sole discretion of the Reichsbank, which was without taking any interests. And so what you saw was some extraordinary changes in Germany. And uh, some of the changes uh, are reflected like this. When a person got married, they were given a loan of a thousand marks, which was enough to buy a semi-detached house. For every child born, 250 marks or quarter of the loan would be um, dismissed, forgiven by the state bank. And so if you had four children, you'd own your home without any debts and it was all interest free. You got a housing allowance, you also got a marriage gift loan, which got repaid by simply having children. And so, there were some amazing improvements in people's um, living standards. And uh, Germany provided completely free education first time in history. And this included education, schools, technical colleges, universities, all free. There was a universal healthcare system where everyone got free medical aid in the Reich. Imports had fallen beforehand by 31%, but now they increased dramatically. Trade increased 76% in the first few years of National Socialist um, administration without any charging of interest by Rothschild banks. And they start to trade using 
um, bartering so that instead of paying through dollars and through the banks, uh, they did exchanges. Argentina gives us meat and we give them Volkswagen cars and so on. Now, Germany during this time built 2,400 miles or 3,800 kilometers of autobahn freeways. And uh, in fact, production of roads increased 229%. And to accommodate the large number of licensed vehicles, people owning cars increased over 425%. And that was um, later increased more than 622%. And uh, production of everything increased. Iron ore increased 45%. Coal production rose dramatically, over 76%. And um, there probably is never such a high standard of living amongst any population. And this was seen during the Berlin Olympics in 1936, which is when a lot of the jealousy starts to rise and the desire to destroy this country, which was showing how successful you could be if you didn't have a usury-based bank. <coughs> and so... By hard work and good, honest money, without any usury, Germany was showing the world an economy that was the envy of all. But then Stephen Goodson also points out that it's false to take what many say that Germany's economy increased because they were spending a lot of money on armaments. He shows that actually Germany was spending less on armaments than their neighbors, only about 4% of national income went to defense expenditure. But Germany did not have a protection by sea, ocean, or mountains and rivers. Their borders were basically with few natural boundaries, basically pretty flat, surrounded by very hostile neighbors with very large armies like France, Poland, and Czechoslovakia. So Germany did try to rebuild their armaments, but only really 1937 on did they start to embark on a serious program of rearming and they had to make up for lost time because almost all their armed forces had been destroyed by the Versailles Treaty. But Italy also now had a state bank and uh, that was so effective that in although Italy did take a loan from JP Morgan of $100 million to meet a special emergency, aside from that in 1927, they refused to negotiate or accept any foreign loans. And as a result, they were able to build a lot of roads and railways and harbors, and there was tremendous improvement. And for example, under Mussolini in Italy in 1920s, they constructed 2,485 miles or more than 4,000 kilometers of bridges, canals, and um, uh, freeways, like autobahns. They drained hundreds of square miles of marshes made habitable. There was tremendous amounts of self-sufficiency and agriculture boomed. So the state bank worked very well for Italy. And then in Japan, there's also a section here where Stephen Goodson shows how the Bank of Japan, founded in 1882, um, was a tremendous success because of um, Charles Douglas's uh, I should say Clifford Douglas's speeches around Japan. His proposals allowed for government to create the national money supply and credit supply free of interest. And uh, 
saving Japan from the usury of the Rothschild banks. And the Bank of Japan was reorganized into a state bank administered exclusively for the attainment and accomplishment of national interest. And this started in 1932. And uh, it was remodeled in 1939 on the German Reichsbank. And uh, they accomplished amazing feats in Japan with this, with huge amounts of increase in production of cars and other um, technology. So the Bank of Japan was controlled by the government who could nominate, superintend, and give orders to the presidents and directors of the banks. And uh, there were all kinds of comprehensive powers to give functional orders to the bank and to direct it to perform to function as necessary for the interests of the nation as a whole. And after the Great Depression, there was a lot of damage to be repaired. But uh, Japan, Italy and Germany were showing the way and having phenomenal economic advances, in massive increase in living standards. And um, by the late 1930s, Japan became the leading economic power in East Asia. Her exports were steadily replacing those of America and England. In August 1940, Japan announced the formation of a greater East Asian cooperative or co-prosperity sphere. And it was the fear that these countries would adopt Japan's state banking methods and abandon the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank model of the Rothschilds that a war was deemed necessary to destroy Japan. And uh, Stephen Goodson documents how Japan was maneuvered and forced into World War II so that they could be destroyed, so that their bank could be replaced with the Rothschild Bank. And the same happened to Italy and to Germany, which is not the way we normally hear it, but uh, it's intriguing to go back and get the details of what actually happened. And so, uh, <clears throat> interestingly, in Germany, um, the um, state bank, the Reichsbank, uh, was not operating exactly according to plan. And so, um, the 19th of January, 1939, uh, the head of the Reichsbank was dismissed, and they were ordered to grant of the Reich all the credits requested by the government, and so the bankers started to resist, and they were removed. And immediately after this, as you start to have a really serious state bank, January 1939, after dismissal of Schacht, who was the president of the Reichsbank, that um, movements began to prepare for a war against Germany. Uh, Montague Norman, the Freemason and governor of the Bank of England, uh, started to maneuver in England to get them ready to wage war against Germany. Because Montague Norman, governor of the Bank of England, told the United States Ambassador Joseph Kennedy that Schacht was his constant informer for 16 years about Germany's precarious financial situation. And the ambassador reported this to Washington, D.C., and Norman tried to intercede for Schacht at the Nuremberg trials uh, through a fellow Freemason who was on the British prosecuting team. And uh, interesting that uh, Schacht was voted for acquittal uh, by a Freemason on the Nuremberg tribunal. And uh, 
there's obviously a link between Montague Norman of the Bank of England and Schacht of the Reichsbank. And it's when the Reichsbank and became truly a national bank that war was maneuvered and uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's government basically put up the Polish government to refuse to return German majority population areas like Danzig back to Germany uh, and to try and reverse the damage done by the vicious and iniquitous Versailles Treaty. And so um, there was plainly a move to operate. The whole war became inevitable mainly after the, the bank was taken under full control. And so from 1939 onwards, Germany made at least 28 known attempts at peace without conditions, all of which were refused. The forced war which resulted in victory for the international bankers meant defeat and slavery for the people of Europe. In Europe, this enslavement was finally achieved with the establishment of the European Central Bank on the 1st of June 1998, introduction of new euro or euro on the 1st of January 1999. Those are some of the comments made by Stephen Goodson that um, this very unnecessary war, followed by the ruin of millions of people and of whole countries, was triggered by the Rothschilds because of their desire for every country to be subjugated to the usury-based banking system. And uh, therefore, uh, war was provoked. German civilians in Poland were being massacred and abused and atrocities were committed. And as a result, uh, the war began at the end of August 1939 which led to such ruin for so many people. So interesting, uh, he also notices that between 1933 and 1937, one and a half million new homes were built to the highest standards in Germany. And each house could be no more than two stories high, had to have a garden, building of apartment blocks was discouraged, rental payments on house was not permitted to exceed one eighth of the income of the individual worker, there was a very high standard of living, um, including ocean liners made available for workers that poor people could have luxury holidays on the Baltic Sea and so on, such as in the Gustav, uh, the Willem Gustav uh, ocean liner. And uh, intriguing, the productivity that came from countries that had banks that didn't use usury, but could issue all the money needed without um, having interest being charged. And so Stephen Goodson closed this section talking about following Japan's defeat, one of the first acts of the United States occupation forces was to restructure the Japanese banking system to make it compliant with the international bankers through usury. This is carried out by Joseph Dodge, a Detroit banker and financial advisor to uh, General MacArthur. And uh, these finance banks were forced to yield to international monetary fund Rothschild-controlled interest. So there we have some examples of people exposing the iniquitous United States Federal Reserve System and the successes of banks that didn't use usury but were controlled by the governments of those countries and created money without getting in any uh, interest, without having debt. Debt-free 
currencies obviously are the way for the future if you want to have a free and prosperous productive society. The productivity of these countries is huge and it is quite extraordinary as Stephen Goodson notices that the Western governments have been targeting often countries that didn't have a Rothschild-controlled bank built on usury. And that explains the First World War's goal of destroying Russia with an excellent national bank and a very strong growing economy under Tsar Nicholas II. And then targeting in more recent years, people like Gaddafi of Libya and the states of Syria, um, which do not have Rothschild-controlled banks. And that's why the title of his book, A History of Central Banking and the Enslavements of Mankind, that the wars that last 200 years or more have been mostly bankers' wars. And as um, the mother of the Rothschild said, if my sons didn't want wars, there would be none. And as Lord Nathan Rothschild said, he cares not who makes the laws of a country. The person who controls the country's money supply controls the country. He said it doesn't matter what puppet sits on the throne of the King of England, on whom the sun doesn't sit. Whoever controls the currency of England controls the empire. And he said, I control the money supply of Great Britain. And uh, this kind of puts a whole different perspective on recent history. But that's what's so refreshing about this book written by a man who was for nine years director of the South African Reserve Bank. So he's a whistleblower from the inside, a trained economist, studied in Belgium and at the University of Stellenbosch. And uh, Stephen Mitchell Goodson's book, A History of Central Banking and the Enslavements of Mankind, is must-reading for anyone who wants to understand economics and wars and politics in the last century in particular, but it goes much further than that. It goes all the way back to Rome. Thank you, Andrew. Back to you. Thank you, Peter. And uh, our series starts back there as well. So there will be a link in the post for this show where you can purchase a copy of Stephen Mitford Goodson's book. And that being said, I want to thank Peter so much for joining us today on a show entitled The Real Story of the History of Central Banking and Its Enslavement of Mankind, Part 4. I want to thank all of you for listening. Peter and I will be back with you next week. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks... Have a wonderful day and bye for now.